Welcome to Locally Grown In, a podcast on a mission to help entrepreneurs growing food locally. Every episode, we will explore local agriculture in a different city. We will discuss the opportunities and challenges in each city by looking at existing data and sharing our analysis. We'll also interview leaders in that city's local food movement. We'll wrap up our episodes with recommendations for those who are ready to dive in. Our goal with Locally Grown In is to help you identify the economic opportunity in growing fresh local food around the world. So let's get started. I'm your host, Henry Gordon-Smith, and we're here again in the basement of Agriculture HQ located in Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York. And I'm here with my amazing team for Locally Grown In. We've got Brianna Zagami on the audio. How you doing, Brianna? Hey, everyone. I had a busy week announcing some big things for our Atlanta conference coming up in April. So if you guys haven't heard, we are co-hosting a conference down in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find more details on our website. Are you also excited about your improvements in bowling this week? The lack thereof. I will never go bowling again because I don't like to lose. I just thought it was great how dedicated you were. You were like, why isn't it working for me? Everything else works. I figure it out. It just takes time, right? Like podcasting. I'm not used to losing. I'm always winning and I'm very competitive. So it was not a fun night for me, but I appreciate all the support. Don't worry. And Susie, what have you been up to this week? What's your news? Um, well, first of all, sorry, Brianna, about the bowling incident. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, <laughs> I'm so excited because I've just extended my internship with architecture. So, yeah, you'll be hearing from me in the next few episodes of Locally Grown In. And uh, Scott, I want to have you. You've been doing a lot of the research with me this week for the city we're going to be talking about. But uh, what are your updates from this week? And uh, you can't talk about how you won bowling because we don't want to hear about that. Besides that. I don't know, Henry. Did you uh, hear about this Amazon HQ deal falling I through? I did. I did hear that news. I had that notification thing that comes up on the computer where it's like, NYC says no to Amazon. It's a pretty, it's a pretty big deal. We it's haven't a, aligned on this yet. Do how do we feel about it? It's a big shocker for New Yorkers. That's for sure. I, you know, I was talking with our colleague upstairs, Verena, before, and I think, no matter if you were for or against this deal. The fact that people were able to come out and take a strong stance and change a political decision that had already been done really shows the power of democracy and the power we all have as citizens if we actually unite and take a stand against something. So I think it's a win for democracy in general, regardless about how you feel about Amazon. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think it's all about that. People getting together and saying, this is our community. This is how we feel about it. And in the end, people should be driving that change. And I think we see the same things in the food system. So I think it was a good day for New York City. So let's dive into our episode today. This is locally grown in Sydney, Australia. We're going down under today. And the reason we're doing that is because I'm actually uh, leaving next week. I'm leaving next week to go speak as a keynote speaker at the AgTech Summit put on by Informa Conferences. And it's a really exciting event covering all different aspects of AgTech. But I'm gonna be speaking about the commercial case for vertical farming and how entrepreneurs can plant urban farms. And that's why this research and all the things we're gonna be talking about today in Sydney is particularly relevant. And we're gonna try and do that with every episode of Locally Grown and trying to connect it to kind of my travel and the events we're all speaking at and involved in. And so it should be really contextualized. But I'm gonna have to say this is gonna be my first time in Sydney. I've been to Adelaide, I spoke at Ozveg a couple of years ago. And so I definitely enjoyed um, you know, seeing that city and learning about ag tech in, in Australia. And I guess just to kick off, let's talk about Australia overall. 
Australia is a really fascinating place because, you know, it, it is a, a, a major agricultural producer and a major ag tech leader. Uh, specifically, Scott and I were looking at some of the data and it exports huge amounts of beef and wheat. I think it was about 50 billion um, in, in exports for that. So really big player exporting to China, Japan, the U.S., all kinds of places. And, you know, it kind of reminded me when I was thinking about that um, back to my studies at the University of British Columbia, where I first got interested in this sustainability question was this topic of virtual water. And, you know, virtual water is essentially the water that's contained within food that's transported between countries. So when you're trying to protect your water budget, your water security, one of the things that a lot of people don't consider is the water that you actually export through food. And uh, I really wanted to bring this up and kind of throw it over to Susie for a moment here because Susie was doing some research into Sydney and it kind of relates to this water issue specifically. Um, yeah, so what I found was that uh, Sydney recently experienced the hottest ever climate since 2011. And also, uh, Australia is known to be one of the biggest producers in terms of per capita emissions of carbon dioxide in the world. So Australia produces 18.3 tonnes per year per person, the 11th highest in the world per capita in 2009. I'm going to pass it over to Scott here. You know, what did you find when you were looking at the Sydney Food Futures report? Yeah, so I think, you know, the first important thing to highlight in terms of local food production in Sydney is that as it currently stands, the Sydney region produces enough food to feed 20% of its current population, which is honestly pretty good, I think, Henry, you know, relative to lots of other cities. And that's 10% of the vegetables and also 2% of the fruit. So it doesn't produce a ton of its own fruit, but vegetables, 10%, that's not terrible. And it produces a lot of uh, other staples such as eggs and meat. And so, you know, the next thing to highlight, Henry, is that Sydney has really two possible futures here. Right now, they're facing a lot of urban sprawl. The city can either grow up or it can grow out. And right now in Sydney, the city based upon their you know, long-term metropolitan plan, is growing out. And that's eating up a lot of the current farmland that exists to produce the local food. And in the near future, if Sydney grows at this current rate, it stands to lose over 90% of its current fresh vegetable production, which is really a lot. And so on a whole, it could drop from you know meeting the current 20% of local of demand for for local food down to meeting just 6% of that demand wow that's that's i mean that's a huge drop it's a it's a huge drop and it's it's not too far off and it's all because of urban sprawl and the city just infringing upon farmland I feel like when I hear that number, 6%, it reminds me of when we had 100, 100 resilient cities come and speak at Atlanta last year, and they were talking about these kind of acute shocks in the system, right? So if, if Sydney got a major, major heat wave worse than this one, right, the next record that's hit, how will that affect that, that risk, right? There's, there's, there's less flexibility in the system. There's less resilience in the system when you go from 20% to 6%. Yeah, and, you know, there's a second scenario to think about which I, I think is really important for cities around the world, which is, you know, even if the urban sprawl was done in a way so that it, it, farmland was protected, just because of the population increase, Sydney would drop down to only being able to meet 14% of the local demand for, for, for local food as opposed to 20%. So that's by protecting all the farmland, you're still losing a big chunk of the ability of the city to feed its population. 
So like so just to confirm, if 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 the policymakers can protected the current agricultural land, then there would still be a 25% loss in that overall supply. Yeah, that's right. So it just highlights the need of Sydney and cities all around the world, which are growing, because that's what's happening globally. Cities are growing. They need more food just to be able to to keep up what the you know the amount of local food that they're producing to meet the demand. Okay, so I'm going to kind of bring it back to the locally grown in kind of crux, like why we're doing this show. When I think about those numbers, and we can look again, we can talk about the fruits, we can talk about the vegetables that are being lost. You know, there are people in Sydney today buying that product, and I can almost guarantee that they are thinking about it, and because it's a local product, right? They're saying, "I know more, I trust more." There's a lot of data that's showing that consumers trust that more, and so what's going to happen is by 2031, they're not going to have those choices anymore. They're not going to have the things that they used to buy for themselves and their family. And when I see that, when I hear that. I think that's an opportunity for urban farmers. I think that's an opportunity for local farmers, for green, new greenhouse growers, for vertical farms, for all these different models to start to say, well, we don't need to create new customers here. We just need to protect the existing customers that are out there. And I think every episode we're going to be trying to find reports like the Sydney Food Futures report to say, you know, there are specific opportunities for local agriculture uh, now and in the future. So for our first interview today on Locally Grown in Sydney, Australia, we're going to be speaking with Luke Craven. Luke is a research fellow in the Public Service Research Group at the University of New South Wales in Canberra and is all about creating new tools for a range of public sector organizations and solving great challenges around policy. So I gave a a small introduction, but maybe you can tell us about yourself and some of the work you've been doing. Yeah, for sure. So my day job is as an academic. So as many of your listeners will know, uh, the food system is incredibly complex. Uh, And one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we can do that systems work uh, at the urban scale. So in cities, I've done a lot of work with local governments here in Australia on developing and implementing food system strategies, but also how they can think about particular programs and policies that can help them shift the food system in a better direction for producers and for eaters. One of the things that is challenging about um, the urban space in Sydney is that it's a very, very complex governance arrangement. So there are 33 city governments in metropolitan Sydney. All of them have different policies, different levels of interest, uh, and different capacities to do local food work or agricultural work. I think the other thing to tell uh, listeners about Sydney and about Australia, uh, we have an incredibly uh, tight food supply chain. Two of our largest food retailers, the two large supermarkets, Coles and Woolworths, control between 80 and 85% of the food supply chain. Uh, And that means that there isn't actually a lot of opportunity for people that are operating outside of that mainstream system to think about food production, to think about how they can be interested in food manufacture in the city and how they can plug into alternative ways that people are producing, distributing and procuring food. And so for those farmers that do kind of attempt to do that, obviously a lot of local farms tend to be smaller in my experience. You know, what do they end up growing and and how do they kind of try and interact with that system? Have you seen some models that have been successful in breaking into that kind of monopoly model that exists? Yeah, so I think on the on the fringe of Sydney, there are still a range of small scale producers and growers. Um, 
the way that they engage with the market won't be a surprise. So we have some really strong farmers markets uh, in Sydney that are you know, well patronised by local Sydney ciders, but also an opportunity for producers in the region, and it's a big region. We also do have some really interesting models emerging. The Food Hub, uh, so an aggregator that brings different producers together and then provides a single point of sale for, for it consumers. Um, different models like that are beginning to take off in Sydney. One of the things that tends to drive innovation in Australia is intercity and interstate rivalry, particularly in the food space between Sydney and Melbourne. One of the challenges in the Sydney food system, and it's an issue that I'm particularly interested in, um, is the, the question of equity in the food system. So population is about 220,000, but there's a good chunk of those, 8.4%, that really do have issues with food access, nutrition, and the way that that impacts on health. One of the challenges when we're talking about how people engage in the food system is that the opportunities to engage in the food system are often distributed unequally. Uh, and I think one of the challenges for building a Sydney food system as we move forward that is able to do things like increase local production, that is able to offer people employment opportunities through engagement in local food, should be starting from a position where we want to be building as equitable a food system as possible. Yeah, I think it's a really important point you made is that often with the local food system, it becomes a niche product for the wealthy and the privileged and the communities that really need that food consistently often get left behind. We're seeing this in cities across the globe and, and certainly climate change is gonna make that issue more difficult. I guess going a bit further into that context, are there any other uh, elements that are driving that topic and any response to that as far as it relates to local agriculture? For example, if we look in New York, there's an affordable housing crisis here. And so we're, you know, a lot of people are trying to connect agriculture with affordable housing issues. You know, what are some of the health and, and environmental issues and economic issues that might drive, make or break the local food movement in Sydney? It's a great question, Henry. So I think, um, you know, like all global cities, Sydney is facing a housing crisis, and particularly an affordable housing crisis. One of the things that has progressively worsened over the course of the past four or five years is social housing. So government provided housing for people on low incomes has been pushed out of the central city because that land is of high value and can be used for you know, high value developments, expensive apartments. One of the things um, that I think is also important to realize is that the conventional Sydney food system is highly dependent on fossil fuel. The distribution system for the transport of food in Sydney is entirely reliant on road freight and road transport. Uh, and there are a whole different range of vulnerabilities inside that system that are connected to, to climate change. And we have to think about how to rebalance the kinds of fuels that we use to power our economy. Mm -hmm. That's going to require a, a massive reorientation in the way that we distribute food uh, in Sydney. You'll also you know, be aware that Sydney is a coastal city. It's a harbour city. And there are significant risks uh, in the next few decades with rising sea levels, increased flooding. And again, all of that, particularly with food growing along those areas, is going to be put at greater risk with a changing climate. One of the things that Australian consumers across the board are concerned about is the lack of control they have over their food supply chain. 
And that is because we have a supermarket duopoly that, as I said earlier, controls a great deal of that supply chain. Is that trust, that, sorry, is that trust-based? Is it, When you say control, is it about the monopoly or is it about uh, trust in, in, in who's behind the food? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I think one of the things that has been challenging in the food system in Australia in recent years uh, is that the duopoly has used its market power to put a squeeze on producers that supply to it through the through its supply chain. And so there was a, a famous or infamous incident here in Australia where the supermarkets were working to keep the cost of milk uh, to a dollar a litre, um, which put a significant squeeze uh, on, on farmers who are being returned barely cents on the dollar for the product that they were supplying. And I think we've had a, a sort of a countrywide issue with, with drought uh, and there is, I think, a concern among the broader Australian public about the well-being of farmers and the well-being of producers and how we do build a food system which values the individuals that take part in it as people and recognise that people have a, a range of needs that we need to think about building into a food system that isn't just about profit. Yeah, definitely. It kind of leads into my next question, which is one of the major challenges as an outsider, not from Sydney, that I've, I've been, been looking at. And there's this, you know, really interesting site, uh, Sydney Food Futures. I'm sure you've looked through it because here at Agritecture, we do a lot of scenario planning, thinking about the future scenarios for local food systems. And it was a pretty interesting site to look at. But, you know, one of them had a, had a scenario that if, if essentially Sydney continues on its current path, it would be reduced from its 20% uh, local food supply down to 6% by around 2031. But what are some of the, 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 the crops that you think are most at risk as part of that, that reduction in the local food system? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's actually a huge variety and diversity of crops that are possible to grow in the, in the Sydney Basin. We'll probably see an across-the-board decrease in, uh, in crops that are being produced of, of different varieties. One of the uh, challenges of urban space in Sydney, particularly when we're thinking about urban farming, vertical farming, is that space does come at such a premium. And one of the challenges uh, that people interested in doing urban farming have found, in particular, is land tenure. Uh, how do you secure a site for more than two or three years before it then becomes subject to development? to build an apartment complex or an mm -hmm. office building. Uh, and so I think that is one of the things that will drive that ongoing decrease in the amount of food produced in the basin. I think as well as the amount of arable land that we have to use decreases, uh, there will be a shift towards crops that are easy to produce and have high yields. Uh, so I'm thinking things here, like people will start being focused on leafy greens those kind of vegetables that you can grow year round, that you may be able to have a hothouse as well that extends your growing season and that you're selling right into a restaurant market that values those goods. Mm -hmm. And the risk there obviously is as that shift happens, the amount of food that's been grown in the basin that can actually go onto shelves or into, sort of into the kitchens of everyday residents is limited because the hospitality market will have the greater buying power to be able to procure that food that's growing locally. 
Yeah, true. I mean, that that, that product is still going to be at a premium uh, unless they can achieve scale, right? From a public policy perspective, what are some things that are already being done to support local food production in Sydney? And, you know, which of those do you think are most effective? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think for your listeners, again, it's useful to understand that the governance arrangement for food policy in Australia is very messy. So not only do we have in the Sydney Basin 33 local councils, the, the statistics vary and people throw different numbers around, uh, but Sydney will hit and Melbourne will hit 8 million residents uh, within the next few decades uh, and there's nowhere to put them. And so the, the priority from, from state government is to build housing and not really to think about how agricultural land can be part of kind of increased density urban developments. But in the, in the Sydney environment, it's kind of this relationship between how are local councils thinking about food as a really important function of the work that they do. I mean, I think that's the synergy that, that we're really trying to work towards. And I think one of the problems we've seen on policy is that they don't understand the full spectrum uh, that's possible in urban agriculture or local agriculture, right? They don't understand the differences between uh, small scale farms and big scale farms, what that really means from a jobs perspective, from a yield per square foot perspective, from a variety of crops perspective, right? Smaller farms tend to have a lot more diversity than bigger farms in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, bigger farms can be monocultures, different issues with that. You've got indoor farms, greenhouses. And we found in New York, we're doing a lot of just education. Like this is the difference in yield. This is the difference in jobs. And, and if we could get cities to look at these as tools in the toolbox and also empower the architects and the planners to be able to integrate those into their projects, get the developers on board. I mean, you know, that's really the path forward. We understand that cities are growing. We understand that affordable housing is a critical issue. Absolutely. But the people who live in those homes, you know, need to need to grow need to have food right they need to have fresh food to consume they need to have food that's going to last uh the the the, the issues that they're going to face that the supply is going to face through climate change and i know i'm preaching to the choir here uh, to probably my listeners and you too but you know what, what does that future look like yeah it's a great question so as i mentioned we've recently had a colleague uh, visiting australia from detroit uh, you and some of your listeners might know of davida davison from food lab detroit uh, and one of the questions that she get gets asked all of the time when she's here in Australia telling the story of Detroit and Food Lab Detroit and you know how urban agriculture has played such a crucial part in the city's renewal and revitalization and people ask the question of Davida but in Detroit there was a crisis right there was a there was a reason for people to think about how to use the vacant space in the city to grow food because they had to they had no other option the city was going bankrupt. They couldn't keep the streetlights on. Where is that crisis in Sydney and do we need a crisis? I think, you know, there's two ways to approach that question. I think the, for, you know, people en masse or at large in Australia to understand some of the major challenges in the food system might take quite a big crisis um, to shift Australians into the headspace where they realize that doing this work in a more deliberate and thoughtful way is crucial for building a, you know, a resilient city moving forward. I think the other way to approach that question though is to say that we already have a crisis, right? Um, in, in Australia, we 
there are there are different measures that we use to track issues around food security and food access. As I said earlier, 8.4% of the city of Sydney is food insecure on uh, on an internal measure, which is 17,000 people in real terms. That's a crisis, right? The fact that 17,000 people in one of Australia and one of the world's richest cities can't afford to feed themselves or don't have the resources available to access food is a national tragedy uh, and should be thought of as a crisis that we need to be deliberately and thoughtfully developing strategies to address. And so I think there's, there's kind of the pragmatic reality of, of most Australians who have you know, reasonably comfortable middle-class lives, in, including myself, for whom there is not a crisis because we can pop down to the supermarket and we'll always be able to right. get food. Uh, then there is another group of Australians who are living at the pointy end uh, and who are really struggling with meeting the basic needs of everyday life. And I think framing the, the challenge like that is a crucial way to generate momentum and to advocate for change. I think there are two other things um, that are probably important to note in terms of how we shift, a, how immediately we shift a policy conversation towards how urban agriculture can be used to address some of these challenges. The first, uh, I think, is probably around jobs and employment. Um, so like everywhere else, the workforce and the labour market in Australia is going through some quite significant and rapid changes. And we're going to need to think about what labour market opportunities look like uh, in the next decade or two. And urban agriculture probably plays a role in that story. Mm-hmm. But the role of jobs and employment in urban food production, you know, the mainstream media and political and policy discourse is absent. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an opportunity to re-inject a conversation about jobs and employment back into that space. The other reason that that's crucial is because while local governments in Australia, so particularly in New South Wales, which is the state that uh, Sydney is the capital city of, uh, do have limited powers, one of the things that they have a focused mandate to work on is economic development, Mm. right? So if you can connect that part of the work that they're doing in economic development and tourism and building sustainable local economies, to the work in urban agriculture and local food production, then I think that's a win-win. And I think that's something to really chase uh, for the sector here in Australia from a policy standpoint. The second thing is, and this is you know, in highly urbanized parts of the country. So I'm thinking here in a city, Sydney, in a city, Brisbane, in a city, Melbourne, you know, the, the three main urban areas in the country. I think there's a significant opportunity to think about how we're using lazy space Um, and so that's Mm. space in the city that while there's an apartment building or an office block or a parking garage there it's not actually being fully utilized most buildings in Sydney are probably actually only utilized 80% of their space right and how can we activate or use that space as an opportunity for for urban agriculture Um, and that's a conversation that has just begun here in Sydney, um, but it makes a lot of sense in a broader culture where we're really interested in utilizing underutilized stuff. You know, you think about Airbnb and you think about Uber, really that business model is entirely about how we activate resources that we've not utilized to think about solving problems. 
one of them is an accommodation problem or a hospitality mm -hmm. problem and the other one is a transport problem. I think we need to think about how we activate underutilised space in cities as a way to solve a food production problem. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, those are excellent points. You heard them from Luke Craven about specific opportunities for local agriculture, urban agriculture. In Sydney, I especially liked that that one that emphasizes the available spaces. You know, cities are fully spaces, and and the challenge is you have to be really creative about design when it comes to agriculture for these spaces. I think a lot about the linear spaces along railroads and linear parks and walkways and things like that. Um, you know, it's challenging to make agriculture work in those spaces, but not impossible. And if you can do, if you can come up with models that allow the community to be engaged in some of that labor and that distribution, right? So you're cutting out the distribution piece where you're selling to a wholesaler based on some of the numbers we've crunched for some of these models with our clients and concepts, it is possible. But if you're running a business where you're packing the product and you're also selling it and losing some money on the wholesaler, those urban models can be very challenging. And I think it's, it's, it, it requires a lot of education to help the developers understand this. But in the end, a lot of the developers I interact with, I don't know if it's the same in Sydney, they, they really want operators. They wanna activate these spaces. They wanna generate some kind of attention or value or even some small amounts of rent off of these unused spaces. And that's an opportunity for local growers uh, one way or the other. And I think what will happen is as we start to turn those spaces to be more productive when they're kind of just lazy, as you said, or, or consuming, uh, we'll start to transform the, the, the future developments. So Luke, I'm, I'm so grateful because that was the perfect wrap up on the opportunities that we really want to recommend to our listeners. Uh, really appreciate your time today. And uh, Luke, where can people learn more about your work or, or connect with you? So it's dangerous in the modern world. You can always okay. Google me. Uh, so I do, uh, it'd be great for people to check out um, Food Lab Sydney, which is a, a project that uh, colleagues and I are working on with the city of Sydney, thinking about how we use um, the power of small business and economic development to transform the food system. So folks can look that up at foodlabsydney.com. Um, if you're more interested in my work specifically, then you can track me down on the University of New South Wales website. Thanks so much for your time, Luke. Really appreciate it. And definitely doing important work. We're grateful for all that you do. And uh, I look forward to seeing more of the results in the future. Thanks so much, Henry. You know, one of my favorite parts about working at Agritecture is we get to work with all these amazing partners around the world. So people we feature on our blog, events we partner with, and amazing technology companies. And I was talking to our partners, Montel, who are the global leader in mobile racking solutions that help you save space in any kind of indoor environment. And so it's these systems and kind of these rails that allow you to maximize space and move aisles as you need to. Um, but I was talking to them and they had gotten a quote for a quote request for building a mushroom farm in Canada. And they designed this mobile racking system for this entrepreneur to grow mushrooms locally indoors. And I thought that was so cool because the winters in Toronto are long and Montel is making it possible for them to grow mushrooms in this controlled environment year round. And it's really not just me talking about this. I mean, AgFunder just wrote about Smallhold and mushrooms are considered like 2019 is the year of the mushroom, according to them. But definitely check out Montel at Montel.com. All their racking solutions, whether you want to grow indoors for vertical farming, leafy green production, mushroom production, definitely check them out and get a custom quote today.
So for our next interview, we really wanted to speak to somebody on the ground in Sydney and working in the urban farming movement. And we were able to get a hold of Scott Gregory, who works on rooftop farm design and is founder and CEO of Sprouting Good Urban Rooftop Farming. So Scott, it's been great to check out your profile. You seem like a really innovative and impact-driven entrepreneur. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself briefly and Sprouting Good? Yeah, look, I, I started Sprouting Good, I think it was back in 2014. Basically, I was looking at a life journey uh, and uh, found that I was having some health problems, mainly around food. And I didn't realize that uh, ingredients in our food was giving me such problems through migraines, mood swings, and just ill health, really. And then um, it sort of threw me into the food production industry and our farming industry and how things are, are progressing along there and the technology side of it. and um, you know, the sustainability of our food supply. And I think I linked that into the social aspect of it, where if you're healthy and you're eating healthy food, chances are you're going to have a better life than if you're adding processed foods and ultimately a diet that isn't improving your health and lifestyle. And I think that's where we've ended up with technology at the moment in our food industries. In Australia, we're seeing a rise in mental health cases, a rise in obesity, diabetes, and all these things that come from a diet that isn't healthy. And um, a lot of people are misguided by media on what is actually healthy and what foods they should be consuming. And we've gotten away from where our food comes from, basically. And my journey's sort of been progressing along with Sprouting Good, although it's been slow and hard to come by, I've learned as I've gone along, I had no farming experience or urban farming or agriculture experience before starting the program. Wow. And I've had to train myself in hydroponics and aquaponics and permaculture techniques with the help of some fantastic people in the industry around the place. And now we're just, um, we're working on teaching students in Western Sydney at Seven Hills High School about food production. You talk a lot about your social mission around food and combating obesity and providing healthy food for your community. You know, what was really that aha moment when you connected that with urban agriculture? Was there something you saw or something you learned? For me, I, I went through, I suppose you could call it a little bit of a midlife crisis. Um, I was working for a company that um, ultimately after 13 years really sort of didn't appreciate me. I was looking for something and I jumped straight into another, another field where I was just earning cash and I'm still working within that as a security guard and it does help me pay the bills. And during that time, I was not well in terms mentally and physically. And uh, I came across the preservatives and the additives in the food. I, I had a great doctor who wouldn't just put me on medications to make me feel better. And he sort of looked into the, the aspects of my whole lifestyle and got me thinking about what I'm actually doing and the choices I'm making around food. And it put me on to some preservatives. 202 was the one that was causing me mood swings and anxiety and a whole heap of gut problems. And I was working with mental health through my security job at the time. And I was noticing that there was an overlap. And, you know, when you're in hospital and they're feeding you hospital food, um, and then family and friends are bringing you in food from outside, and all you're seeing is KFC, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, you wonder what impact it's having on people's lives. And that's where I was. You know, I was eating fast food you know, probably up to five times a week due to my busy work schedule. And when you have a look at people on the streets, they're, they're given money, you know, $5, $10. They end up going to those fast food providers. When you're regularly eating them, they have an impact on your, on your health. 
when you're on the streets, um, you're not going to get out of it. You're not going to improve. Mm-hmm. You're not going to feel good. All you need, I, I believe, is healthy produce, healthy food. It tastes good if you're eating, eating stuff that is fresh. I guess, tell me a little bit more about what you're growing at Sprouting Good or what you hope to grow in the future. What are some of the crops and the varieties uh, that you're growing? So we've been growing cherry tomatoes because they're nice and simple. Um, strawberries. We grow a range of fresh greens like lettuces, although we haven't been overly successful with them because the uh, insects and the pests love them so much. Things like green kale, purple kale, cucumbers, pumpkins. So we have a um, another permaculture sort of area with garden beds that allows us to grow some of those larger items and the greenhouse itself allows us to grow aquaponics upstairs which we mainly focus on cherry tomatoes and the strawberries and then we have a green wall on the side of the container uh, which uses hydroponics to um, grow things like fresh herbs basil the lettuces chilies so it gives the um the students a little bit of diversity and allows them to pick in the future if they want to continue to garden and grow their own produce at home or to build an urban farm which we've had a couple of students take on the role at home you know they've built aquaponic systems at home for themselves whereas they would never have done that without sitting the the school's course so you talk a lot about the kind of ideals around having this healthy local food available but obviously there's some increased costs to some of this producing in the city at different scales have you thought about that and maybe what do you think the the future is for a more equitable food system in sydney for example do you think there are some clever ideas you have or that you've heard to get those costs down and make sure that local agriculture is more available to all of those that need it yeah, look, I think the supply model is a questionable one at the moment. We flood the market with our produce and then we throw most of it out when it's not, you know, presentable anymore. And um, there are, are companies like Oz Harvest in Australia that are doing fantastic work by recirculating some of the waste to less fortunate people. But our, our costs are driven by how much we're supplying. And one of the questions you did bring up in an email was um, our climate and having the climate impacts. And I don't know if you've seen the news recently, but our far north Queensland uh, counterparts have just been devastated by floods. You know, and that was in a 48 hour period. Um, It's wiped out farms, it's wiped out cattle, it's wiped out people's houses and lifestyles. And this all adds to the cost of producing. Some of the technology that we have can allow us to plant what we require and not have to rely on just flooding the market. And then it can plan into the future as well. So if you know that 100 people are buying 100 lettuces a week, you can just plant 100 lettuces and ensure that you're not planting 1,000 lettuces to supply a market for 100. And um, I mentioned Lufa Farms earlier. They're doing that in Montreal quite successfully. In Australia, though, we're, we're naive to it because... We are led by two major supermarkets or three major supermarkets now and um, people just drive to the supermarket and get what they require. And um, it's been a long time that traditional farmers working land have been calling out for help and they get Band-Aid fixes. You know, the government throws some money here and some money there, but the supermarkets are driving costs down. You know, our, our fresh produce is, to me, was comparatively cheaper than what it was when I was in the States to buy and it was easily uh, accessible. But housing affordability and now fuel costs and everything generate that. So there are a lot of people struggle who will reach for 
a canned product versus a fresh produce item because of the costs are not even comparative. It, it's quite funny. It, our, our canned produce goes to places like Thailand and the Philippines to be canned. And, you know, our fresh produce goes there. It gets canned, sent back. And it's actually cheaper than if you were to buy it fresh. Well, I want to thank you for sharing all your thoughts today, Scott. It's been really interesting and inspiring to speak with you. If you want to learn more about Scott Gregory's inspiring, pioneering work through Sprouting Good, you can learn about his charity at sproutinggood.com. And be sure to check out their Facebook page where they post pictures and learn more about their events there. Thanks so much, Scott, for your time. Is there anything else you want to kind of share with the with the listeners anything else you want to put in there that we didn't cover today look i, I think um if you're not growing your own produce get started you know just open up a web page and take a look and grow what you love to eat you know and you know get into it it's just it's easy to do and um get passionate about it, it doesn't matter if you're doing it for yourself or for your neighbors or for your whole community just get started well there you go you heard it here on locally grown in Thanks so much again, Scott. Thank you. It's been so exciting to look at Sydney, Australia, and the challenges and opportunities for local agriculture there. And some of the conclusions that I've come up with with my great team here are, first off, in relation to what entrepreneurs should be thinking about when they're starting farms in and around the city. So I think you have to go to the Sydney Food Futures website and use that as a baseline to begin your search. A big part of planning your farm is thinking about what you're going to grow. So going off of some of the things we heard from our interviews and also the research there, if we look at the crop predictions um, and the production predictions between 2011 and 2031, we can see that some of the products that are most at risk are vegetables, for example. So there's a prediction that about 90%, over 90% of the vegetable production is going to be lost by 2031. And so a lot of the economics for producing a local vegetable uh, make a lot of sense and, and, and lend itself to having a viable business. I was surprised also to see that eggs are going to have a huge reduction. Uh, and so eggs, which I think now is about 40%, um, that's going to be going down. Um, there's another category, which is meat, which is the another one of the biggest categories is going to have a huge reduction. Um, and I think overall, you need to look at the trends in Sydney about how people are moving more towards vegan diets, because I think some of these numbers could even push the vegetable demand up even higher by 2031. And that may not have been considered, at least I didn't see that considered uh, in this assessment here. But when we look at some of the other product categories, fruit and dairy, seafood and grains, yes, there's some reductions there as well, but it wasn't as significant as those categories in vegetables, uh, eggs and meat, for example. So definitely take a look at that graph there on the Sydney Food Futures website and think about that as you're planning your farms. And again, in, in the context of urbanization, you need to be able to do more with less. So on the vegetable side, I recommend looking at uh, greenhouse models, hydroponic models, maybe distributed farming models, smaller farms around the city that don't require as much space. You know, you could grow young plants in maybe a single facility and then have them finish closer to the customer in a smaller distributed farm. Uh, vertical farming, you know, could have a play as well for some of the spaces. You know, there's vacant space in the city as we heard on our interview um, these could be basement spaces or some of the available spaces around uh, buildings in the city so take a look at those opportunities and be sure to focus on growing vegetables and more with less space some other final thoughts as i was thinking about what sydney could do to encourage local agriculture uh, really relates to this topic that Luke was talking about, which is, you know, there's kind of this monopoly over the grocers and that as a farmer, you could have your prices pushed down 
because the grocer has so much influence on that price point. And I guess my tips there would be definitely focus as much as possible on direct to consumer sales through farmers markets. And if your model is about selling wholesale, meaning selling to distributor, you're going to have to focus on collaboration, right? We've seen a lot of examples across the world of cooperatives in France, cooperatives in Canada around agriculture. And I think that's one thing that could really make a difference in the local food scene. So if you're looking to build a large scale, scale acre plus uh, farm or two acre plus farm, then you're going to really want to collaborate with a lot of other farmers. And my message to the policymakers in Sydney, Australia, to connect the kind of food system to what they're working on is, you know, cities all over the world, just like Sydney, are facing affordable housing crises. And, and that's really important. But food is as well. And I think connecting those two things together, that the cycle of poverty isn't just about not having a home for you and your family, but it's also not having enough money to buy high quality food. And, and that there's ways to connect those two models together. There's ways to design agriculture into built environments. There's ways to connect job creation as it relates to green jobs and local food production with affordable housing. And if they can push the boundaries of design and work with creative architecture firms, work with creative planning firms, they could actually change the context of this urbanization path forward. One way to do that without losing land is to think about uh, rooftop spaces, basement spaces, uh, the spaces in between buildings in affordable housing complexes that would allow the residents to have fresh local food, uh, allow them to uh, improve their health as well by being more active and being connected to the quality of food around them, and also improve their 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 wallet, right, and, and be able to access food that's more affordable and closer to home. And so I think those strategies today are really what I wanted to leave. And always remember, when you shop local, you support your local farmers and protect the local food system. So there you have it, locally grown in Sydney, Australia. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to our first episode of this Agritecture podcast. I want to give a big shout out to my team here. We got Brianna Zagami on the audio. We got Scott Mattis doing our research with us and looking at policy. And the amazing Susie Ju from South Korea, live from New York City, our research intern, giving us all the info. Before you leave, make sure you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. It's easy. It's at Agritecture. And we'll be tweeting all about local food movements around the world, urban agriculture ideas, events, promotions, you name it. We've got it at Agritecture. We really want to hear from you. So please be sure to reach out to us. Tell us what cities you want us to feature. Tell us what we missed. Tell us what you think. Tell us how you feel, what you like to grow, and send us lots of love. That's it, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to Locally Grown In. See you next time.